Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that we get to gather with other believers each week to worship you, to hear your word, to come close to you. God, as we draw near to you, would you draw near to us? We love you so much. Amen. If you were wondering, the elephant noise was my son. So <laughs> he's a sweet boy. The funniest part was my wife was like, hey, you have the elephant. <clears throat> Don't press the button. I was like, that makes sense. Right when everyone's silent. It's like. <laughs> As Jim said, my name is Xavier. Um, I'm one of the pastors at Redemption North Mountain. I'm excited to be here with you today. Uh, one quick comment before we jump in. <clears throat> I just want to say, whenever I talk to your pastors or your leaders behind closed doors, they talk a lot about you and they talk about how much they love you. So I just want to say you, you have some special leaders and pastors here that are very intentional to create a space and environment for you guys to walk together towards Jesus. I love Redemption Peoria. I'm just excited to be here. I love seeing what you guys are doing. So just to share a little more about myself, um, my family is here, but I want to show you a picture of my wife and my two sons. I'll tell you what I mean by that. So there's my wife. That's Annalisa. Uh, we're in year seven right now of marriage, uh, which is nice. I enjoy spending a lot of time with her. Then that's Dominic. Um, he is the funniest kid ever. Uh, the other day, he went down a slide. He knocked his front tooth out. He swallowed it. So now he's toothless till he's seven. So, and then uh, second boy is Malachi. Oh, wait, go back really quick. That's still Dominic, but Malachi is in this picture, but he's still cooking. So April will meet Malachi. So you can be praying for that. We're excited to meet him soon. And then just want to show one more picture of Dominic because he's so cool. Look how cool he is. <laughs> His little pit vipers and his shoes. So um, as we've been preparing for this new baby, we've been going back with memories, thinking about what it was like for Dom to be born. Um, we're just going through all these different things that happened. And we still remember when he was born, it must have been two days in the hospital, and then we drove home. If you have any kids, you know that feeling when you put your baby in the car seat for the first time, and you're like, why are they trusting me? So we drove home, we get home, we're not even home for 24 hours, and I'm holding Dom, and I'm looking at him, and I'm noticing he's really yellow. So for me, it was one of two things. My son is Mexican, so I was like, maybe it's, maybe he's getting some brown in his skin, or it's jaundice. Ah, that's not good, so I called the doctor. I said, hey, um, you can't come to the doctor till Tuesday, this was Saturday at the time, because it was a long weekend, you should go to the ER if you think it's jaundice. I said, okay. So we go to the ER, and we're sitting there waiting. I'm a germaphobe. There's a lady coughing. I'm all nervous. So I'm sitting there waiting, and then the guy comes and checks us in, and he's typing away. He goes, why are you here? We say, well, we think our son has jaundice. And he looks at him, and he says, oh, he doesn't really look like he has jaundice. And I go, he looks pretty yellow. Then he looks at my wife. This is a real story. And he goes, she looks like she has jaundice. He does it. <laughs> I'm like, dude, she just gave birth. Why would you say something like that? <laughs> so then we, we finally go back, and we're sitting there waiting again, and two doctors come up and say, hey, why are you here? And they say, well, um, we think our son has jaundice. And they look at him, and they look at each other, and they look at him, and they say, we don't think he has jaundice. You guys should go home. 
So, okay, we, we go home. A few days go by, we go to the doctor on a Tuesday, and the doctor says, hey, I just want to do an examination just in case. The doctor comes back and says, here are the results. Your son definitely has jaundice, and it's pretty bad. But it's been long enough now. You just have to wait it out. It'll, it'll take care of itself. And I always go back to that story. I just think to myself, all I needed them to do was to actually examine the problem. They just passed over it, but an honest examination would have revealed the problem and led to a solution. All I needed them to do was actually test it, not just look, but just to say, what's the examination here? Let's find out if he really has it. I think about us. As we walk with Jesus over time, I think that we always remember that we needed Jesus whenever we came to accept him. But naturally, over time, we could convince ourselves that we don't desperately need him now. We could just pass over this. But if we would have taken honest examination of our own condition, not just pass over it, but an honest look at our lives, I think it would reveal to us our deep, present, and continuous need for Jesus right now. When we examine the characters of today's story in Esther chapter 2, I think it truly reflects our current condition, and it forces us to examine ourselves and to set our eyes on our own need for Jesus. So as you go through this, my big idea for today is this. It's simple. An honest look at our lives reveals our need for Jesus. As simple as that. If we were to look at ourselves honestly, it would reveal our desperate and current need for Christ now. So what I want to do is I just want to go through chapter 2. I want to talk a little bit about what the author is trying to do as he introduces these characters. And then I just want to look at three observations from the text to point on how these help us examine our own lives. So if you weren't here last week, we're going through a new series going through Esther chapter by chapter. And just a quick recap from last week, chapter 1 introduces us to King Xerxes, who is this powerful king that has a really big ego and had a big banquet to win people over to stack up his army for war. While he was very drunk in the story, he wanted to show off his wife Vashti, who did not come out, so he banished her and also made an edict to make sure no woman would ever do this to any man in the kingdom again. And now we're in chapter 2. So if you don't know this, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, five years actually pass. And what the author wants to do is continue to introduce us to some of the characters. So the five years pass, and in between these five years, King Xerxes actually went to war and lost. The movie 300 is loosely based off of that war. He goes to go win this battle and loses against a small army and comes back very sad. And then this story starts. While he's sitting there very sad, some assistants come to him and say, you look really sad, we have an idea. What if you got all of the young women in the kingdom and you brought them into the, into the palace and you slept with them one by one? Would that make you happy? You could choose one to be your wife. And he says in the story, I think that's a good idea. Okay. So then we continue on. And after that, this is how the rest of the story goes. He starts this competition, this twisted version of The Bachelor. And 
we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai, this Jewish man, his cousin Esther that he took in as his own, this beautiful young Jewish woman, as they describe her. And as the story continues, what happens is Esther joins this competition with advice from her older cousin. Do not tell anyone that you're Jewish. She goes in and does this, and after a long preparation, she goes and meets the king and pleases him the most. And Esther becomes queen, and then another big banquet is thrown. That's the baseline of this story, of chapter 2. Now, as we go through this book, the thing I really enjoy about Esther is it forces us to take time and to put down our natural flinches when it comes to reading the Bible. I might be wrong, but I think that we can get accustomed to reading Scripture to find who are we supposed to be in this story. So I'll give an example. In Genesis, when we read stories like Joseph, we say, well, how do we become more like Joseph? How do we become more patient like Joseph? And patient, waiting for God to actually reveal his hand in our story. Uh, But this is not how we should read this book. This book, Esther, is not a how-to book, and it's not a these are the way things are supposed to be book. If we look at it through this lens, then we end up trying to look for the good godly character. We say, should we be like Vashti, the one who stood up against the king? Should we be like Esther, the one who was submissive to the people above her? Should we be like Mordecai, the one that tries to make wise moves? But if we do any of that, it actually leads us in the wrong direction. Rather, the way this book is written is as a narrative in its purest form. It's telling things not the way that they should be, but the way that they really are. It's not being biased to win you over to somebody. It just wants to tell you what really happened. And that makes this chapter filled with insight. This chapter introduces some of the key characters of the story, and the author just wants to show you the truth about each one of them, about Xerxes, about Mordecai, and about Esther. And the author wants to show us a few things in and through them. He wants us to know there's no named hero in the story. Esther isn't the hero. There is a hero. He's just not named. He's behind the scenes. On top of that, he wants to show us that real stories are not black and white. They're gray and they're nuanced. Uh, But on top of that, there's three observations in this chapter that the author wants us to notice. So I just want to go through each observation in the text and reflect on how each is displayed in our own lives and how we as disciples of Jesus can fight against these things. As we examine the characters in the light of the honesty of the author, we also examine our own lives knowing that an honest look at our lives reveals our need for Jesus. So observation number one is this. All the characters compromise in one area or another. As each character is revealed in this story, they are not revealed in a good light, but they are revealed in an honest one. Like we said, King Xerxes, with the fragile ego, He lost the war, and he throws this big competition. I think all of us can say he's not the good guy in the story. We look at him and go, he doesn't really have a lot of morality. For him, it doesn't exist because he believes he's his own God. So we kind of count him out already. We know he's compromised. 
But let's look at some of the other characters. Let's look at Mordecai. Mordecai is introduced, and the original readers would have read this, and they would have cringed. This is what it says. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive from Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So there's two comments on Mordecai. The first one is this. Mordecai is one of the Jewish people that did not return to Jerusalem. The Jewish people would have returned back when they were allowed to rebuild the city, but he is not one of those people. So strike one on compromise. But more than that, there's something about his moral character that's a little more hidden, but is shown to us in something that he does. So in the story, it says that he takes in his cousin. I think all of us would say that's really respectable. But when the competition starts, it seems that not only does he allow her to go, but he sends her off with a piece of sinful wisdom. Make sure no one knows that you're Jewish. Make sure no one knows that you align with our God and sends her off. I think all of us would say, especially if we're parents, that's not the best move. For us, we could say, what if he was like Daniel that said, I will never step down from my God no matter what anyone says. I'm going to keep Esther here even if you kill me. But rather he sends her off and says, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. There's Mordecai's compromise, even though it's hidden. And Esther's is hidden as well, but it's a little unique. For Esther, we have to be aware that she does not have the same power as the other people do in the story. There's two things happening at once with her. She is being taken advantage of, and she is also stepping into sin, both at the same time. We have to be aware that part of Esther's story is her being sinned against, and at the same time is her going into sin. For her, even going and not revealing her nationality, following the rules of Mordecai shows that she's submitting under man more than God. But at the same time, we see how other people like King Xerxes are taking advantage of her. As we see each person in the story, we notice everyone in this story is compromised, and it seems that they are all working in some way or another for their own good. Now, a really honest examination of our own story would reveal something to us. We are all currently compromised in some area. I'll say it in this way. For five years, I was a youth pastor. And um, with that just came a lot of funny conversations, just to be honest. I remember going to Top Golf once with uh, a young man. He was in high school. And we sat down. I said, hey, how are you doing? He said, I'm not doing so good. I go, why? He's like, well, I cheated on a math test, and my teacher caught me. We have a meeting tomorrow. I go, all right, what are you going to do in the meeting? He's like, well, I need a certain GPA to get my scholarship for ASU, so I have a good plan for tomorrow. I go, what is it? He goes, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to double down and lie. And I'm like, you know I'm your youth pastor, right? Like, I just... So I go, I, I think it's a bad idea. I think that, I think you should tell the truth. I go, let's just play out a couple scenarios. What if you go in and you tell the truth, and then you say, hey, I, I just want to be honest, I cheated on the test. And your teacher looks back and says, wow, 
I admire your courage and your honesty. Because you told the truth, I would have forgive you and give you another chance to take the test. Would you tell the truth in that situation? And he said, yes. I go, okay, let's play one other scenario. Let's say you go in and you tell the truth. You say, I, I cheated on the test. And your teacher says, I admire you so much. I'm proud of you for telling the truth. I respect you. And because you cheated, you're still going to get a zero. In that situation, would you tell the truth? And he said, no. I go, okay. Well, at least I know where you're kind of saying on this, I guess. I remember texting him later like, hey, how did it go? I think he just said something like, I figured it out. So he probably lied. Um, <laughs> when I think about his story, I think it reflects something that's just true in us that we need to continuously submit under the authority of Jesus. It can be hard for us to accept our sin in general, but it makes it even harder to accept our sin when it benefits us in some way. For all of us, there's undealt with sin in our lives that God still wants to lead out of us. There's things that are in our lives, intentional or not, whether we're aware of it or not, that God is still trying to lead out of us. And sometimes we're blind to those things when they're actually working out for our benefit. We don't want to say, that's sin. We would rather say, ah, that's not that bad. It's often easier for us to conceptualize sin than for us to embrace the fact that we are sinners and that we often compromise our morality, especially when that compromise helps us gain our own desires. Our sin could be in any one of these categories, too. It could be severe sin like King Xerxes, just obvious, blatant sin. Whether people are Christian or not, they all go, ah, that's not on the good list of things. It could be like Mordecai, acceptable sin, sins that are kind of hidden, that even the people around us that are Christian kind of say, I do that with you. Or it could be like Esther, sins that are done against us, or passive sins of just going along with what everyone else is doing, even if it's not the will of God. What we must do is look at our lives with a fresh lens to see that we compromise still, and we need Jesus to enter in and to continue to heal us. The solution for this for us is not to set our eyes more on our sin or to distract ourselves from our sin, but to set our eyes more on Jesus, to remind ourselves that he actually gives us the way of freedom from our sins. And a practical way of doing this is something that we actually did earlier today in the service. The only way to fight the temptation to compromise in our own lives is through confession. Confession is verbally naming our sin and our shame, sins that we've done or sins that have been done against us to one another. Because as we verbally confess our sins, it opens us up to awareness of our need for Jesus, and it opens us up to the grace of Jesus. On the other side of confession is always the grace of Christ. A great quote of this is from a pastor named Tyler Staten. We can't live without sin, but we can live without secrets. For all of us, we can continue to open up so that we can avoid the compromise to the world. We need confession that we are still compromised. Okay, back to the story. Observation number two is this. The characters assimilate to the surrounding 
culture. So the characters, the people that are Jewish in the story are assimilated. This is something that we notice. The Jewish people in the story look more like the culture than they look like the people of God. So here's just a couple things that are interesting about these two characters. First is Mordecai. Mordecai now is known as a Jewish name. But then Mordecai was not a Jewish name, but actually a name that reflected the false god Marduk. So all the original readers would have noticed this and seen that he looks more like the culture than a Jewish man. But more than that, let's look at Esther. Not only does Esther not say anything about being Jewish when she goes into the palace, not only does she not use her Hebrew name, but she actually intentionally disregards the way of life of a follower of God. These are the things that she does in the story. She has sex with a man that's not her husband. She marries a pagan. She eats unclean food, which are all things against the Mosaic law. Not only would she have not have said with her mouth, I'm not Jewish, but with her life, she would have had to intentionally disregard the way of life of God. With both of these characters, they look much less like people of God and look much more like Persians. Now, just to us again, we, if we were honest with ourselves, are much more assimilated than we think. This is just true. We all start to look like, sound like, and behave like the people and the environments that we spend the most time around. And this is amplified in our current world because of how fast content is coming at us and how curated all that content we consume is. The average American adult watches TV or videos online about how many hours a day? What do you think? How many hours a day? Five to six hours a day. Like, this is just real for us. We have endless content, most of of which is not pointing us to Jesus, but all of it is shaping how we see the world and our life. The TV shows we watch, the Instagram pictures we gaze at, the YouTube videos we consume, all impact us and what we believe to be true, even if we do not think that's the case. The lie at hand is for any of us to believe that all this content does not impact us. But what makes things really unique in our time is how this information is actually curated. Uh, There's a book I've been reading called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deep Again. It's a really good book. It's not a Christian book if you're going to go read it. But they tell about a story that happens to a lot of us. Tell me if you've ever experienced this. Recently, I told my wife, I really want a Garmin running watch. I went and told my best friend, I really want a Garmin running watch. I went and told my boss, I really want a Garmin running watch. And then I took out my phone and I went to YouTube and what did I have an ad for? A Garmin running watch. Have you ever experienced this before? Okay. I told my wife, I was like, they're listening to us. We don't need to get chips, they're tracking us already. Like I just started getting into the conspiracy. So in the book, they actually tell about this story. This happens to people. And he asks one of his friends, who um, is one of the people behind the scenes of our phones and technology, is it true? Are they listening to us? And he said, no, they're not listening to us. The truth is actually way scarier. They have enough data on all of us because of our searches and because of what we watch to actually know exactly what ads to give us. So when we say out loud, I want a Garmin running watch, they're already prepared for that. 
Now, I'm saying this intentionally, not to scare you, but I'm saying this because part of what happens when so many things that we watch or view are curated for us is that we lose the ability to see the full picture of things. We can't help but assimilate. Politically, we're fed more and more of the opinions we already have. Our ideas that we may want to be true about sexuality or money or manhood can all be affirmed through searching things online. This forms us in the way that we think, act, and live. And if we are not intentional, we will naturally look more like the world than like Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, do we look more like our political party than we do our Savior? Do we live a life filled more with the consumerism of the West or the generosity of Jesus? Do we believe the words of Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson more than the words of the Sermon on the Mount? Are we being shaped more by the words of the content we consume than the words of Scripture? Do we live life like God cares only about our Sundays? Or do we live life like all of life is all for Jesus. For us, we have to be willing to be intentional about the way the world is forming us. The only way that we can fight the assimilation to the world is to get the truth of God in our blood. Setting our eyes on Jesus through the word of God till it shapes who we are. We should go to the word often enough so that when situations come, it's in our DNA to follow Jesus. When the time comes to love our neighbor or to be obedient to God or to serve or to die to self, our natural response must be to follow Christ. But the only way this comes is when we know the word of God. We do this simply by engaging with God's word each day. We fight the temptation to assimilate through the daily practice of engaging in Scripture. We just said this to our church last week. Hearing Scripture read and taught on Sundays is really good. It's just not enough to fight the current of the world. We must be going to God's Word daily. Here's the last observation from chapter 2 is this. The characters are seeking control of their story. There's a really interesting two-sided coin revealed within this chapter for each character. Each character is intentionally making decisions to try to gain control, and at the same time, each character has something outside of them that's outside of their control. So for the king, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, the king forces all the women to come to the throne, and at the same time, he just lost at war and keeps on being manipulated by the people around him. Uh, For Mordecai, He takes Esther in, and he's really intentional about what Esther needs to do. He's gaining control. But then right when she leaves the house, he has no control over her anymore. Verse 11, every day he's walking back and forth near the courtyard just to find out what's happening to her. He has no more control. For Esther, she's very intentional about what she does with each person. She listens to Mordecai. She listens to Haggai. She listens to, like, she's doing everything super intentionally to gain control. She even becomes queen. But at the same time, her whole story is filled with things that are outside of her control. Her parents dying, her being taken by her cousin, her being taken by the king, are all outside of her control. 
The point seems to be, and this is the underlying theme of this whole story, is as these people go on to make all their own decisions, there's actually someone behind the scenes unnamed that's really in control. That even though they want to gain control of their own story, there's somebody writing the story behind the scenes, God himself. Now, I just want to be honest with all of you. As I was going through this, this is the area that I suffer deeply in, this desire for control. And God is lovingly shaping me. There's some serious examples in my life where I just want control, and God is working those things out of me. And there's some silly ones. So I'll tell you a silly one. I was in and out the other day, and I go through the drive-thru, and I order my typical order. Now, I know I'm preaching it for the first time, so this is a risk telling you my order, but I'm going to. So they say, what do you want? I go, can I please have a three by two? So three patties, only two cheese. I don't want that much cheese. Can I get a three by two? Can I have chilies on the burger, no tomato, no onion? Can I have the bun extra toasted? And can I, I know, I know. <laughs> and can I have the burger cut in half? God is, like I said, God's working in me. So <laughs> we, I go through the drive through with my wife, and, and I get the food, and we drive home. Anna is uh, going to go put Dom down, so I'm sitting there. It's just me and my burger. I'm so excited. So I, I take the burger out, and I take a bite. I'm like, man, this is so good. Extra, the crisped bun, no tomato, chilies. But I notice there's something wrong here. There's only two patties. So I get out my phone, and I call in and out. And I have to remember, I'm a pastor, baby. <laughs> so either way, I call them, hi, just wanted to share. They gave me two patties instead of three. Now, I will say, this time it kind of worked out in my favor. The guy on the phone said, did you just say they give you two patties instead of three? I said, yes. He goes, that's unacceptable. So it worked out. He gave me a gift card. It was very sweet of him. But... This is just a point to the reality that God is trying to work in me because I really want things in my life to go a specific way. And God is constantly showing me Xavier is not in control. As much as I want my burger to be perfect, sometimes it's not going to be. As much as I want my life to work out in all the ways I want it to, majority of the time, I am not the one driving the ship. Matter of fact, all the time. God is actually working behind the scenes and doing something to bring his will to life. Now, we have to be honest. We live in a world where the driving desire of daily life is to bring our dreams to reality, to live the best version of our life, and to become all we were meant to be. This all falls under this assumption that we think we can control much more than we actually can. One of the hardest things is to confess we are not in control and to grow in trust with God. And that's what this whole story is about. Some sinning, assimilated Jews that God used for his will to come to pass and to save his beloved people. And God, who is endlessly in control, brings his will to pass. Now for us, this is how we can fight this temptation. One of the ways we fight the temptation to grasp control is to the practice of silence. I know we just did that a moment ago, but in our daily life, choosing intentional moments just to be quiet. 
Silence is a physical reminder that we're not in control. We're always moving and consuming and filling space with noise. But silence and stillness reminds us that when we're not working, God still is. When we're not planning, God's plan is still coming to pass. When we're not moving, God is still moving in the lives of his people. When we're not speaking, God is still speaking through his word. Silence reminds us that God is in control, not us. Imagine if daily we just took a moment, five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, just to breathe, to confess, God, you are in control. Just to remind us as we go into our days, as we try to bring our past to life, our will to life, that God's will actually will come to life. We fight our desire for control through the physical confession that God is in control of all things. And we do this through the practice of silence. Now, as we go through this chapter, we notice an honest look at them shows us some things. Compromise, assimilation, people grasping for control. And in the same way, an honest look at our lives reveals our need for Jesus. We all compromise. We all assimilate. We all believe in the lie that we are more in control than we think. But what's beautiful about our position is we know the end of the story. There was someone who never compromised. There was someone who never assimilated and was fully in control. And he used his authority to give us new life. And behind the scenes of this story of Esther, that same God, Jesus, is working. And he has made a way to freedom from all these areas that we might struggle in. We gain freedom from our own conditions through setting our eyes more on Christ. Now, I just want to end with this. I don't want this sermon and the practical tools I was saying to overwhelm anyone. I don't think the goal is now, go be perfect in all these things. But rather, I just want you to ask yourself, which one of these three is revealed in your own current story? Are you compromising in some area? Are there parts of your life that look more like the world than like Jesus? Are you grasping for control? I just want to put this little graph up. All all I want you guys to do is just to choose one of these things this week. Maybe it's confession. Maybe it's scripture. Maybe it's... There's one more slide. If we go to the next slide. Just choose one practical tool a phone call of confession this week? What would it look like if whatever you're holding inside that's weighing in your heart, you were willing to say out loud to somebody? Uh, For someone else, it might be scripture. Tomorrow morning, before you touch your phone, go to the word of God so that you can assimilate more to his will than to the will of the world. Or maybe it's a desire to grasp for control. Take 15 minutes, it's going to feel like forever of just silence to remind yourself while we are quiet, God is still working. Whichever one you choose, just be reminded of the goodness of Christ, that when we struggle, we still have a perfect God that pursues us, that loves us, that we can actually run towards. With that, let's pray to him right now.
Jesus, we just thank you that we have this set-apart day once a week where we get to come and to glorify your name as a community together. We just pray that you would continuously reveal these things in our hearts. Reveal the ways that we compromise. Help us be honest with those things. Reveal the parts of us that look more like the world than like you. Reveal the areas that we are grasping for control. And as you reveal those things, God, would you actually reveal your goodness on the other side of them? That we can run to you, our perfect Father. And that Holy Spirit, through your presence in us, that you would lead us more in the way of Jesus. God, I pray that you would lead us to follow you, Jesus. Jesus, that we can become more like you. And Jesus, we can do what you did. Thank you for your truth. Would you lead us now as we spend time worshiping you? And everybody said, amen.